Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll read a portion of this chapter at its commencement. I add my own words of welcome. Good to see all of you who have gathered here tonight. And we trust the Lord will bless every heart, bless those online, and meet with us all as we come together to worship Him around His own Word. So Hebrews 11, and we will read from the verse number one of this chapter. As Mr. Stewart has said, we're glad to have our friends from Inverness here this evening again, and I trust the Lord will bless you in your time here in the province and take you back safely to your own home country and area. So let's read here. Before we read, we'll have a word of prayer. Um, we'll commit our time to the Lord. We need His power. We need His help. And we trust indeed that He will give grace tonight. Let's all pray. Our Heavenly Father, we continue in Thy presence in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for the One who came into the world to rescue sinners. Lord, there's a reminder in that hymn of man's desperate state, of how far down sin takes humanity, of how low sinners go. And yet, Lord, we thank Thee there is one who came in the fullness of time, been born of the woman, made under the law in order to redeem those under the law, that they would receive the adoption of sons. We thank Thee for all in the gathering who are already in that category of having been rescued, saved by grace, found in Christ, joined to Him, and indwelt by the Spirit. And yet, Lord, there are others here of whom that cannot be said at this moment. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will bring the Word home to them, challenging them, convicting them, opening up their understanding, giving them the gifts of faith and repentance, drawing them even to the man of Calvary. And so bless us now. Give help to me. Cleanse my heart from every stain. Fill me with thy Spirit. Come upon this congregation. Meet with us, we pray, and do a work of grace in hearts this night. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen and amen. So verse number 1 of Hebrews 11, let us hear the Word of God. Now, faith is a substance all things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And the Lord will bless the reading of his word to all of our hearts. My text is verse number 6. It's a powerful verse. It says, reading it again, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. In Hebrews 11, a certain order is followed in the narrative that the chapter records for us. It's a very well-known chapter. It's a tremendous presentation of a selection of people from Old Testament times who had that faith that is spoken of virtually in every verse, by which they overcame, by which they were saved, by which they lived for God, 
and serve God in their day and in their generation. If we read the chapter carelessly, we might conclude that the order in this chapter is purely historical or chronological, but that is not the case. Rather, essentially, the order that Paul follows is one of spiritual experience. Now, there is historical order in parts of the chapter, but even in those parts, as we will see, there is this, uh, this order of spiritual experience. For example, in verse 9, reference is made to Isaac and Jacob before attention falls on Sarah. In verse number 11, though Sarah was the mother and the grandmother of Isaac and Jacob respectfully or respectively. Then in verses 30 to 31 is another example. The collapse of Jericho's walls is mentioned before Rahab and her faith come into view. Whereas when you look at the book of Joshua, you find that Rahab appears before Jericho is destroyed. In verse 32, Gideon appears before Barak, Samson before Jephthah, David before Samuel. A definite reversal of the historical order. The obvious reason for that detail is that Paul follows, as I said, this experiential and spiritual order mainly as he writes this wonderful chapter. In fact, when the historical order itself is observed, the spiritual order is also in view. You consider the first three characters in this chapter mentioned by name, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. In these three cases, yes, you can see the historical order in those three, one after the other, is followed precisely. But Abel's mentioned first, not because he lived before Enoch and Noah, but because in Abel we see the life of faith beginning. That's how he appears in this chapter. That's how he stands in this chapter. He shows us where the life of faith really begins. It commences when a sinner is brought to Calvary to view Christ dying for sin. That's the dominant truth that is seen in the experience of Abel. That's where the life of faith begins for anybody. We are not saved except, first of all, we are brought to the cross, and we see the Lord dying for our sins. And that dominant truth is seen here in Abel's experience. That's why he stands first. Likewise, Enoch is mentioned before Noah, not because that's the historical order merely, but because what divine grace performed in Enoch precedes what is typified in the man who built the ark. You see, in Enoch, we are shown that walking by faith before witnessing by faith is the feature of the life of faith in Enoch's case. Enoch walked with God. He demonstrated that he had been to the cross, and he showed that the result of meeting Christ, who was revealed to him so long ago in the early parts of world history, led to a change in his life. And he began to live for God and walk with God. And therefore, the spiritual experience is clearly in view in the order that Paul follows the whole way through this wonderful chapter. Verse 6, while it does belong to the central theme of this chapter, namely living the life of faith, yet it stands on its own. In the narrative, nobody is mentioned in verse 6 in terms of some Old Testament character. No experience is mentioned or no event is mentioned in verse number 6. It really stands on its own. Verse 6 forms a general statement of the life of the Christian no matter when it may be or who it may be. These words are not only true of all the people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, but also of every true child of God who ever has lived in this world or who ever will live in this world before the Lord comes back. What you have in verse 6 
is true of every child of God. From that perspective, this verse asserts three important truths about every individual who will ultimately inhabit heaven for all eternity. That really gripped me as I thought about this verse and and prayed over it and, and prepared what I want to preach to you this evening. It has in its bosom three important truths that mark every person who will one day ultimately go to be with the Lord in glory. That's the striking feature of this verse. And it's very solemn. And therefore, we must look at this verse intelligently, and we must look at this verse honestly. And we could ask the question at this time, who will be in heaven forever? That's a searching question, men and women. We live in a world, in the religious world, where everybody is told virtually by preachers and movements and writings that all people are going to heaven. It doesn't matter who they are or how wicked they are or how ungodly they are or how much defiance of God they have. They're all going to heaven. How often we hear that when we attend funerals conducted by other denominations or other churches I'm not saying we're the only church, but I'm saying this. You go along to funerals and you hear the greatest load of nonsense. Everybody's going to heaven. And the man who has died or the woman who has died may have been the greatest rascal to walk the face of the earth. And we're told they're up there looking down at us. No, my friend, everybody is not going to heaven. Indeed, the Bible makes it clear very clear that not everybody will be in heaven by any stretch of the imagination. That is not the case. Multitudes will be lost. Yes, there will be multitudes in heaven, but who will be in heaven forever? A searching question. And this verse gives us the answer in terms of what it clearly states. And to sum it up again, In Hebrews 11, verse 6, we have three vital truths about those who will be the Lord's forever. So in this verse, I see three things. I want you to notice them with me. Number one, here is something impossible. The verse begins this way, but without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So there is something that Paul says that the Holy Spirit says is impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The word without means apart from, apart from faith. It is impossible to please Almighty God for the reason that He requires that you believe in or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from your sin. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and by grace alone. And therefore, without faith, it is impossible to please God because God requires saving faith of men and women that they might be with Him in glory. Then the word, impossible itself. That word literally means not able. So without faith, a sinner is not able to please God. It's impossible for that person to please God without faith. He's not able. She's not able to please God. Note that sinner. You are an unbeliever because you do not trust in Christ. You do not believe in Him alone for salvation. Therefore, while you live that way, while you conduct yourself that way, while you think that way, then you, it is impossible for you to please Almighty God because He does require of you that you trust in Christ, that you come to His Son, and you rest in Jesus Christ alone in order for you to be saved. In essence, therefore, while you remain in unbelief, God is utterly displeased with you. And furthermore, He rejects you completely. 
That's what Paul is saying. Here is something impossible. While you remain in unbelief, God is not pleased with you. God rejects you. You continue that way, you will be lost forever. At the very heart of this case that's brought up in these opening words, this thing that's impossible, is the matter of acceptance with God. That's really what's in view here. So long as you do not rest in Christ as your Savior, it's impossible for you to please God in the sense of being accepted by Him. Acceptance with God is the very matter that needs attention regarding the salvation of the soul. What is it to be saved? What is it to have peace with God, for God to be pleased with us and to, and, and to pardon us? It is to be accepted by Him. And my dear friend, that's a vital, vital thing. Ask yourself the question tonight, Am I accepted by God? Does He look at me as belonging to Him? Does He look at me as being His child? Does He view me as one of those who one day will leave the world and go to be with God in glory? Is that true? Are you accepted by God? That's at the heart of this, this thing that's impossible. Without faith it's impossible to please Him, because when there's faith, then thank God there is acceptance with the Lord. Now that point is proved by the way in which Paul begins this chapter. I've already mentioned it briefly as he presents examples of those who did please God, and Abel, of course, is the one who stands at the very head of the list. Look at verse number 4. Read that verse with me again. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he, being dead, yet speaketh. Now that verse rings with the note of acceptance, signified by those words, God testifying of His gifts. And the word gifts is a reference to the offerings, the sacrifices that Abel brought to the Lord, as you find in Genesis 4, by which he demonstrated that he understood the gospel, that he had heard of Christ, that he knew that the only way to be right with God and accepted by God was through the atonement, by the shedding of blood, by the offering of one sacrifice that would satisfy God forever. That's all in those words that refer to his gifts or his offerings, his sacrifices, because he brought a multiplicity of offerings. He brought the firstlings of his lambs and all that he had in his flock. He brought the best to God because he was, he, he was showing, he was demonstrating, I have heard of Christ. I've heard of the Lamb of God. And now I am demonstrating that my faith and my hope are placed in Him, and God bore the witness that Abel was righteous through his faith in the promised Redeemer. God was pleased with Abel, and therefore God accepted Abel. You see, Abel worshipped God according to divine revelation. Faith must have a foundation on which to stand in coming before God or worshiping God, whatever. And that foundation is the revealed Word. Abel had that revealed Word. It was passed down to him by his parents. Adam and Eve, obviously it was. God spoke to Adam and Eve. Indeed, it was Christ who appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden just after they had sinned. He came walking in the cool of the day. He went after our first parents as they ran away and sought to hide in the trees of the garden. But the Lord went after them and He spoke to them and He gave that great announcement of the first gospel covenant promise ever to ring out uh, unto men, unto our first parents, Adam and Eve. Those words of Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. It's addressed to the devil, you see, but in the hearing of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. 
and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And in that announcement, there was the revelation of divine promise, the promise of a Redeemer. And there was also the revelation of divine purpose, that the Lord who would come, the seed of the woman, would bruise the serpent's head. We're at the cross there again. We're viewing the Lord Jesus and the death at Calvary that He died. We're seeing Him there in the mighty victory of His death as He bruises the serpent's head that is the old serpent. And therefore, this man Abel had passed down to him the message of how he could be saved, how he could be accepted by God, how he could please God by coming and looking forward by faith to the Son of God and trusting in Him. And therefore, as he acknowledged the truth and he rested in Christ, as this fourth verse tells us in this wonderful chapter, he received that verification that he was righteous, that is accepted by God, and all was well with his soul. You know, that's what distinguishes Abel from Cain. Cain was the elder of those two brothers. But being an older brother doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Cain was the apostate. Cain embraced the falsehood that he could please God by his own efforts. So he rejected divine revelation. And then he was rejected in turn. That's the horror. That's the awfulness of Cain's story. He sought to please God, or so he thought, by what he did. But it was a rejection of God's way. And therefore, God being displeased with Cain, rejected him. And Cain is lost forever. He said, my friend, true faith submits to the divinely revealed way of salvation. And I ask you another simple question. Have you submitted to gospel truth? Have you come to Christ to trust in Him as Abel did, as Enoch did, as Noah did, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, you keep on going. If you haven't, then God is not pleased with you. And as you sit in your pew tonight, or among you who view in online, and you go through this Sabbath evening service time and you haven't come to Christ, understand in the light of the Word of God that you are rejecting God's revelation and therefore God is not pleased with you and therefore God does not accept you and He rejects you even as you are before Him under gospel preaching. Abel worshipped in faith according to divine revelation. But there's another thing here because I've touched on already, but I come to it now in more detail. Abel worshipped in faith according to divine requirement. Notice those words in verse 4, that he brought a, an offering, a sacrifice that was more excellent than Cain's. It was more excellent because it was what God had appointed as the basis of approach to him. Approach to him. That's the vital point. I want you to see at this stage. What God had appointed as the means of approaching Him, coming to Him. It's the same thing. Remember our text. It talks about coming to God. And we'll see that a little more in a moment or two. And so coming to God is written about in the Bible. It is an act on the part of a man or a woman or a young person. You need to come to God. You need to approach God. But my dear friend, the only way to approach God is on the ground of sacrifice. That more excellent sacrifice 
compared with the sacrifices of pagans and heathens and Romanists and those who have no religion whatsoever. There's a more excellent sacrifice, and that sacrifice is what God requires. This is divine requirement. There has to be a sacrifice that God, with which God is well pleased before he can be well pleased with the sinner. And so, in Genesis 3, you see the development of all this. Verse 15, we have looked at that verse, thought about it here momentarily. That wonderful statement of covenant promise. But you move to verse 21. And whereas in verse 15 of Genesis 3, you see the Redeemer promised. When you come to verse 21, you see the Redeemer previewed. Because in verse 21, we're told that God took coats of skins and He clothed Adam and Eve, and in doing so, He was giving them a preview of what the Lord, the seed of the woman, promised in verse 15, would actually do and undergo when He would eventually come into the world. You see, that action of God's, it was God who clothed them. And just note that, because it's God who saves people. It's God who clothes them in the righteousness that they need. It's God who washes them in the blood that the Redeemer sheds. God clothed them. But where did the skins come from? Yes, they were animal skins. But the point is, animals died. Their blood was shed. And then Adam and Eve were covered. And God was giving Adam and Eve a preview of the cross. And the suffering of His Lamb, His dear Son, and in offering His sacrifice, Abel, I mean, He was acknowledging, He was obeying, He was acting accordingly with what God had shown already to His parents and then through them to Him. He was actually acknowledging the righteous verdict of the judge in driving man from the garden because he deserved nothing less than that. He had sinned against God. He had broken His law. He must be driven away. But before God actually drove Adam and Eve out, He showed them the cross. He showed them the way back. He showed them that there is restoration. As we were saying tonight, He rescued me. God rescues sinners by the work of the cross, by the shedding of the blood. And so, in all of this, oh, the details are amazing. Adam and Eve, Abel, were being shown that God is holy, He must punish sin, that man is guilty, He deserves divine retribution, divine judgment, but they were being shown as well, God is merciful, and He accepts the death of the substitute. He is satisfied with the shedding of the blood of the one who dies in the sinner's place and who does that work by which God's holiness is upheld, by which God's righteous demands are met and the law is honored and wrath is turned away. And therefore, this is the divine requirement. And Abel saw it, and Abel recognized it, and he brought that which was a testimony to the fact that he saw all this. And God was pleased with him. There in verse 4 again of Hebrews 11, look at those wonderful words, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. How did God testify of Abel's offerings? And the answer is very simple, actually. Fire would have come from heaven. That's what's in view in those words. God testified of Abel's offerings. He sent fire down, and it consumed those offerings. You say, how do you know that? I know it from the pattern of Scripture. Every offering that was brought to God in Old Testament days virtually was burned. And in many cases, the fire that consumed them was fire 
that came down from heaven. Abel would have seen the consuming of a sacrifice by the fire of God. And you know what he would have felt? That fire should have fallen on me. But it fell on the substitute. God has accepted the substitute. It's all pointing to Christ again. At Calvary, men and women, the fire fell. The wrath of God came down. He should have fallen on humanity all around Calvary and across the face of the earth. You see, there's not a human being who deserves to go to heaven. Not one. The whole human race should perish to a man. But thank God heaven will contain a great multitude that no man can number. Yes, multitudes will be lost, but thank God, I believe with all my heart, there will be far more in glory. Because God is satisfied with Christ. And his requirement was that the substitute would die, his blood would be shed, Christ would be consumed in the wrath of God, and therefore men can go free. And so, notice those words again at the start of our text, without faith it is impossible to please him. My friend, if you do not follow, obey, surrender to the divine requirement or the divine revelation and the divine requirement, again I tell you tonight, God is not pleased with you. The very opposite. And therefore, here's something impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Then I see in this text something indispensable. Something indispensable. It goes on to say this, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. I've already commented a little while ago there briefly on the word cometh. It means approacheth. So read it that way. He that approacheth God. And then the word must. It literally means it is necessary. He that approaches God, for that person it is necessary that he believes, and here's something indispensable, he believes that God is. He must believe that. And the sense is this, that in approaching God it is indispensable that we believe that He is. Now do you see why the man who says or claims to be he's an atheist cannot please God because he denies there is a God. He mocks God. He defies God. He laughs at God. But oh, the awful end that man will have. As the preacher once said, whoever it was, there are no atheists in hell. What he meant was not that atheists don't go to hell, Every man who claims to be one and ends up in hell knows immediately there is a God. And so, here's something indispensable. Here is a vital fact of biblical Christianity that distinguishes it from all other religions. God is. What does that actually mean? God is the self-revealing God. That's what it means. The gods of all other systems of belief are the products of the human mind. And I haven't time tonight to take you to verses where that is actually stated in Scripture, but there are many of them. Mr. Sturt was dealing with Psalm 115 in the prayer meeting, and, and, and he was bringing out of that psalm some great truths about our God. But in that Psalm 115, in verse number 4, for example, we find that the gods that the heathen worshipped are the work of men's hands. You find in verse 15 in that, or verse 8 in that psalm, 
that those who make these images and idols and bow down and worship them are like them. Why is that? Because when men form their own God, and many do, they carve an image, they make a likeness of what they think their God is, but the ironic thing is, it just looks like themselves somehow or other. It's got a human form, it's got a certain shape. You see, the only pattern they can follow is what they see in themselves. And the Bible therefore tells us that those who are worshippers of other gods, the product of their own hands, they are like the very things that they worship because they form those gods out of the image of the human. So what is worshipped? Apart from the true God is the invention of the darkened, superstitious, blind minds of men and shows the utter folly of idolatrous false religion. I would encourage all of you here tonight to read Isaiah 44 as a most powerful revelation exposure of the folly of idolatry. Down those verses, it talks about a man taking a piece of a tree, and with some of that tree, he lights a fire to warm himself. Another part of that tree, he uses to cook or roast his meat. And then the rest of it, he carves into an image and he falls down and he calls on that piece of tree to save him, to hear him. The folly, the awful folly of false religion. Sinner, if you are to be saved from your sin, it is indispensable that you approach and you bow to the self-revealing God who presents Himself to you in the Scriptures of truth. This is something indispensable regarding you yourself. You must believe that He is, as He has revealed Himself in the Word, for the good and the eternal well-being of your immortal soul. Now, I haven't time tonight at all even to begin to just give you a few points of truth about those words, something indispensable, that you must believe that God is, that God has revealed Himself, and you must believe that, you must rest in that. But I'll just mention a few. What does God actually show with regard to this issue that He is? And we know He is because He's revealed Himself to us in His own Word. God is your Creator. That's what you must believe, as it were. That's the starting point. In this matter of something indispensable, you need to come to terms with the fact that God made you. Do you know that's where Paul started when he preached at Athens? On Mars Hill, that great message in Acts 17 that starts in verse 24, and the very first thing that, or the very first word that's in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill is what? It's the word God. That's where he began. Why did he begin there? Well, he goes on to show us he deals there with creation. His mighty sermon that commences with the truth, therefore, that God is. And we know that God is because of the revelation that we have in creation, because of what He has done in creation, the sovereign creatorship of God, and therefore the authority that He has over your life. Do you believe that? That God spake? As it says in the Psalms, Psalm 33, He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. And that includes humanity. And even when we look at biological procreation and reproduction, 
every time a little one is conceived in the womb. Yes, there is the biological union between the husband and the wife. But if there were not the creative act and power of God in that, there would be no conception of life. And therefore, sinner, is simply this. God made you. You owe your life to Him. If you're going to come to Him and know His grace and be saved from your sins, here is something indispensable. You must believe that He is and He's your Creator. But a stage farther, He is also your judge. God is. And He is the judge of all. That's logical extension from Paul's words. Those who come to God must believe that He is the Creator and He is the judge. And you know, again, on Mars Hill, Paul brought that in. You go down through those wonderful statements that he made, that message that he preached, and he ultimately comes to judgment day. And he says in verse 31, For he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. That man is Christ, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. My dear friend, he is your creator and he is your judge. And as you live in this world and you leave this world, as you're now living, you are going to meet your judge. You'll meet him the moment you die. There's no intermediate, there's no, um, there's no soul sleep, there's no state of unconsciousness for a while. You leave this world, you're fully conscious. In fact, you'll be more conscious than you ever were on the earth. Because here you are living out your days and it seems you're under a stupor and you're dull and your mind is not alert in the sense of these matters, these spiritual issues. You're blind to them. You seem to be oblivious of them. If you die and waken up in hell, I tell you right away, you will know how wrong you've been. And you'll understand immediately that you're lost forever. And then, of course, God is, He's the Creator, He's the Judge. But listen, He's the Savior of men. Notice the words again, He that cometh to God must believe that He is. Approach of God, as I've said, can be read that way. The language signifies there the act of the guilty sinner approaching God for what reason? To obtain His mercy. He that cometh to God, He must, is indispensable, that he believes that God is creator and judge and savior. My friend, are you ready for that? Are you ready to come to the Lord tonight, coming to God, approaching God, recognizing this thing that's indispensable, that you've got to shake off your darkness and your dullness and believe that God is, and then seek Him as He has made Himself known as the Creator and the Judge and the Savior. And that brings me, therefore, to the final thing that's in this verse. Here is something imperative. Something imperative. Look at the last words. And that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And there's something imperative. And what is it? You know what the word imperative means? It's, it's something that's demanded. And that is that God requires and commands that sinners seek Him to obtain His mercy. You must come, it tells you here, believing that He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And you know that word diligently, 
And then the word seek. They're all one word in the original language. And it literally means to seek out. Seek it out, friend. So God's telling you. This is something imperative. I've been speaking there about shaking off dullness and deadness and, and neglect of your soul and, and all that has been leading you on the wrong road in life. Shaking all that off, as it were, and, and getting rid of it and going to God. And here's something imperative. You must go to Him. It tells you here as the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. What the Lord is telling you is that in Him and with Him there's everything you need to save you. He's the rewarder of those who seek Him in this diligent way. That means there should be no, de no delay in seeking God. Furthermore, there should be no deviation from this issue of seeking God. You should let nothing stop you, nothing hold you back. Here you are in another Sabbath evening meeting when we have the evangelistic thrust, and rightly so. People wonder, why do you preach the gospel? Well, we preach the gospel in the morning too, but in the evangelistic sense, why on Sunday night? Because if you read your Bible carefully, our Lord preached on Sunday evenings as well as Sunday mornings. And our Lord called on sinners to come to Him and seek Him in the evenings of the Sabbath. And flocks of people came and were converted. It's all in the Gospels. But the point is, you must, you must let nothing delay you or deviate you. This is imperative. He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Here you are been told as a sinner that you need to seek the Lord. And the Bible tells you that everywhere. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And then return unto his God who will have mercy on him and to his God who will abundantly pardon him. My dear friend, that's just one more example. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. There are many, many of them. Yet you have never sought the Lord. You have never sought him as a sinner, broken, feeling and knowing that you're lost, guilty, before him, deserving hell and wrath and judgment, and yet finding that this God who is, yes, your Creator, your Judge, is the one who saves, who saves through His own Son, who rescues sinners from the depths to which sin has taken them, or wherever they are in life, maybe religious, up, uh, upright, but really self-righteous, you need rescue too. You need the Savior. And the Lord is pressing on your soul something imperative. You must seek Him diligently. Let nothing stop you let nothing lead you in some other direction. But this very Sunday night, is this not the time for you? The Lord holds out that offer of mercy and grace. He calls on you to repent and believe. You're a rational creature. You've sinned against God. If you're going to be in heaven, as I started out by saying essentially, here we are at the climax of what you need to recognize. We've seen something impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And something here, as we've noticed as well, indispensable. You must believe that He is. And something imperative, you need to come to Him and seek Him 
with all your heart. Now, sinner, young or old, are you going to come to the Lord tonight? Are you going to cry to Him for mercy? Young person, where are you? But older person, what about you? Or even little child, what about you? Are you ready? Is all well with your soul? Will you be in heaven? You might say, well, who can answer that question? Who can be sure of being in heaven? Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The assurance of eternal life is as much a part of the gospel message as the very way in which we are saved. Come, sinner. And I mean that. Bow your heart now. Bow yourself before the Lord. Cry to Him to save you. Put your trust in Christ. receive the forgiveness of your sins. If you wish to speak with me or Mr. Stewart about these matters, see us after the close of the meeting. Let us bow in prayer. Let's just quietly, reverently, and in stillness place ourselves before the Lord I renew what I have said. Troubled sinner, anxious soul, it is time to seek the Lord. Seek Him tonight. Wait no more. Speak to us as you're leaving. We'll be glad to meet with you and help you from the Scriptures. As Philip helped the eunuch, as Peter counseled the people at Pentecost. Don't delay, don't deviate. May God give you grace. Father in heaven, bless thy word. Use it for thy glory. Bear it home with power. Bring conviction and trouble of soul and concern upon men and women, young people, even little ones. Do a work of grace. Magnify thy Son. Through sinners been drawn to him by the blessed Spirit and through the Word of the living God. Remember the youth meeting coming up soon now. Blessing that meeting, the beginning of this youth challenge week. And Lord, may the Spirit move and may much be done for thy glory. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of your dear people both this night and then forevermore. In Christ's name we pray.